Joe, we'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're starting there in just a second. First Corinthians 11. The passage that Nelson just read for us is, there's a lot in there, did you notice, as he was reading? The passage says that we're in trouble here because we need help to be stirred up, to be faithful to the Lord, to continue looking forward to the hope that we have ahead of us, to continue to be loving, because all the pressures around us, as Caleb prayed earlier, there's all kinds of pressures that draw us away from the Lord, push us away from the ways that we need to live. So how's God, how does God work in our lives to fix that? And there's a variety of ways, but the text that Nelson read for us in particular emphasizes that this is a pretty big part of how God protects us against Satan's attacks. The end of that text said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Now, it's not like God's up there like, man, I just need people to get together and praise me. Like, he doesn't need that. He's got angels up in heaven and all that kind of stuff. The assembly isn't because God needs us to do that or something. The assembly is because we need it. We need this kind of encouragement, these kinds of reminders. Uh, this, the, like some of the translations say, to stir one another up. We need to be stirred up. Because in your spirit, you can get pretty lax, right? I think about in the past week. Do you have any days where you're just like, I'm not feeling it, Lord. I'm going to do it, but I'm not feeling it. And if you go too long with that, eventually you can really die out. If you don't have times like this. Now, by the way, the first day of the week isn't the only thing that he's talking about there. But that's at least part of it. That when God's people come together, we stir each other up so that we'll stay faithful to the Lord. So I'd like to actually talk about that. The past several weeks we've been talking about um, church and what the body of Christ is about, what we're supposed to do. Caleb talked last week about a variety of activities that we do to help each other in the body of Christ. On the most fundamental level, this is going way back to the very first lesson that Caleb presented in this series, you may remember that the word church is not a religious word. All it means is a group of people or an assembly. So actually, like at its most fundamental level, whenever we get together like this, this is uh, churching. Now, we're, we're always, if you're in Christ, then you're always a part of the church, of course, but this is a really central activity that God's given us to be together and to spend time with one another. And this has been going on for centuries on this day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus came out of the tomb. We come together to remember the hope that we have because of his resurrection. It's actually kind of interesting, whenever Jesus rose from the dead, have you ever thought about that? Maybe even this week, as a lot of people have been talking about, this, this commonly is celebrated, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. You may have even gone back and read some of the texts whenever Jesus came back from the dead. Do you remember some of the things that he did after he came back from the dead? Which, by the way, what would you have done if you were Jesus? Uh, that's a weird, weird question to ask. But if you were Jesus, what would you have done after you came back from the dead? You've just defeated death. You've just smashed Satan right where it hurts. Like, you've done everything. What would you do? Maybe go up on a mountain somewhere, you know, like shine a really super bright light so everybody could see what you've done. I don't know. Maybe not. Jesus didn't do that, though. Jesus went to people. Uh, for instance, he went to Mary in the garden and reminded her of who he was and what he had promised. He called Peter to himself to restore the one who had forsaken him. And actually, when you read through the ends of the Gospels, most of what Jesus did is he met in the assembly of the believers. You know? Matthew 28, Jesus was on a little hill, a little mountain, and his disciples gathered to him. There's the group all together there, the 11. Um, 
In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus met with a couple people on the road and had dinner and spoke with them. And then he went to all of his disciples who were in an upper room, probably hiding out because they didn't know if they were going to get off next since Jesus had died. And there he came among them and taught them. In John chapter 20, we see Jesus coming among the believers. Remember that time when Thomas wasn't with them? He was, I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't there. Jesus was with them. And then he came back again when Thomas was with them. Jesus met in the assembly. Whenever we assemble... We're carrying on the legacy of what God's people are supposed to do in response to the risen Jesus. So what I'd like to do is think about what our assemblies are supposed to be like. We're going to look briefly at three texts uh, that teach us some things about our assembly. The first one I pointed you to is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the context. If you'll notice in verse 17, look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, listen, I'm about to give you some instruction and I do not praise you for this. In other words, they were doing something wrong. Something was not going right in the church at Corinth. And as you read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, you find that when they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, it was a mess. It was not the way God intended it at all. Um, And I want you to notice what the problem was, and I think it teaches us something about what our assemblies are supposed to be like. 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll go ahead and start in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together, you assemble Not for the better, but for the worse. By the way, did you guys know that we're going to have to watch out in this church? Because it would be possible that we could get together and assemble on the first day of the week, and it would actually be worse for us and not better. That's a kind of jolting and uncomfortable thought, that you can get together on Sunday and it can actually be worse for you spiritually rather than better. Okay, why? What's the problem? Keep on going. Verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, he's saying, I know some of y'all are living worldly lives, so there's going to be a division between the godly ones and the worldly ones. Okay, but where's this division coming from? Where's this difficulty coming from in the church? Keep going. Therefore, verse 20, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another's drunk what do you not have houses in which to eat and drink or do you despise the church of god and shame those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i praise you in this i will not praise you all right so here's the situation they were coming together for church whenever they got together uh people were making the lord's supper instead of a memorial for jesus they were just making it into a party People were eating, getting drunk, doing whatever they want to do. And you notice how he describes it? He says, each one of you takes his own supper. In other words, everybody's just eating whatever they want, thinking about themselves, not interested in the other people. Probably the reference to the poor is that it's likely that they would have had services later in the day and people who didn't get Sunday off, like in our culture, sometimes at least, people would come like after work late in the evening. And so um, what would happen is the people who didn't have to work as long or as much or at all, they'd come, have a big old party, and then the people who were poor would show up later and they wouldn't have any at all and they wouldn't be able to remember the Lord. All right, what's the problem here? What's the lesson that we learn about our assemblies? The thing I think we learn about our assemblies is that our assemblies are to be Christ-centered, not me-centered. Our assemblies are supposed to be Christ-centered, not me-centered. You see in the text, he goes on and starts talking about what the Lord's Supper is actually supposed to be about. In verses 23 and following, he talks about when you come together and you take the supper, you're supposed to remember Jesus, to remember his death on the cross, to remember what his death means for you and what's changed in your life. You're not supposed to just enjoy yourself. You're supposed to be centered on him. And by the way, if we're all centered on him, 
There's not going to be divisions. There's not going to be factions. There's not going to be people getting mistreated and all that sort of stuff because we're all centered on the Lord. Now, you know, this is not necessarily what church looks like in a lot of cases, right? You even hear it sometimes whenever people will say, either people who are promoting a church or people who are talking about church, they'll say, I'm trying to find a church that fits me. Well, like, there may be a certain extent where if you're saying, like, I'm trying to grow spiritually, okay, that may be right. But actually, I think what a lot of times people mean is, like, I'm going to find, like, a group of people that look like me, feel like me, sound like me. I'm going to find somebody who preaches who's funny and not too boring or goes too long. I'm going to find music that I like. I'm going to find something that fits me. That's not what church is about. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to like church, okay? That's not the point. But church is about the Lord. I need to be focused on Him. That's why, I mean, so I, I tried to write down some stuff that we need to be mindful of in our assemblies because I didn't want to forget this stuff. Uh, for instance, in our assemblies, we need to be mindful of those of us who lead in prayers and in songs, of course. We've got to be making sure that we're giving attention to praise, right? which, which a lot of people have made effort. And I think that's a good thing because our assemblies are not just things where we're like trying to take from the Lord. God, give me something, give me something, give me something. But we're trying to center ourselves on the Lord and think about Him above all others. Um, also, the reason we take a good bit of time to think about the Lord's Supper is because that's why we came here. We didn't come here for each other, or we didn't come here to listen to somebody talk. We came here to remember the Lord. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, think of that as the main event. This is what we're here for, taking the bread, taking the cup. That's the centerpiece of everything that we're doing here because our assemblies are meant to center us on the Lord. All right, go to another text. Go to 1 Corinthians 14. So the first lesson we learn about our assemblies when we come together on the first day of the week is that we're supposed to be centered on the Lord. And you see that even when Jesus rose from the dead. Remember I mentioned earlier in Matthew 28, whenever the disciples gathered to him, Matthew 28 verse 16 says they came and they worshipped him. When we come together, Jesus gathers us to be centered on him. But there's something else that Jesus did after he was raised from the dead, whenever he was among the assembly of the saints. In Luke 24, Jesus appeared among the disciples, and they were all shocked. Like, how did you come back? You're back from the dead, and how could this happen? And Jesus actually gets on them a little bit. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then the text says in Luke 24 that Jesus, this was Jesus' big thing after he came back from the dead. Instead of talking to him about what it was like being dead, which, what was that like? But he didn't talk about that. He didn't even talk about necessarily the future so much, but what he talked about was Scripture. He opened them up and he said, hey, here's this scripture that Moses talked about. That I fulfilled that when I came back from the dead. Hey, this prophecy from Isaiah about me defeating, what I fulfilled that just now. Whenever Jesus gathered his disciples, he taught them. And actually the same thing is supposed to happen in our assemblies whenever we gather around the Lord today. 1 Corinthians 14, we've referenced a couple times over the past few weeks. But I want us to look a, a little bit at what's going on here. Let me just tell you, and you can read this chapter later and you'll see it more. In Corinth, there were some people who had gifts from the Lord to be able to do different things, like maybe prophesy, maybe speak in different languages, and so forth. And so their uh, assembly was kind of just a free-for-all. People were jumping up, like, I got a prophecy, and somebody else would be like, oh, I want to say something. Somebody else would be like, I'm going to speak in a different language. And it was just, like, just a melee, just crazy. Paul really gets on him for that. Now, someone would say, hey, I got this gift from the Lord. Like, I should be able to share this thing. And Paul said, no, no, no. You're not supposed to do that. There's two points of emphasis that he really gives in this text. One is that our assemblies need to be understandable. He really gets on them, and he says that, hey, like, speaking in tongues, you shouldn't, if people can't understand the language, you shouldn't really be speaking it. Because 
How's that going to help anybody? Similarly, he says, like, listen, there's an order to things. Y'all shouldn't all just be jumping up, all talking all at the same time and all that kind of stuff. He even gives specific instructions. There are only supposed to be two or three who might give a teaching, you know, at a time or whatever. And even that would be in turn. He specifically says that, uh, that only men are supposed to be speaking, teaching um, in the assembly of the saints whenever we gather together as a church. He said, like, why, Lord? Why, why all these rules? Why all this uh, order? Why is it such a big deal? Well, look at a few things that he says about what's supposed to happen in our assemblies. For instance, in verse 26 of chapter 14, look at what's supposed to happen. He said, what is the outcome then? So this crazy assembly where everybody's just shouting and saying whatever they're thinking, whatever. Verse 26, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue. I want you to imagine that for a second, by the way. Imagine right now we had uh, Cliff start speaking in uh, Italian, of course. Start speaking in Italian over here, you know. Caleb says, I've got a revelation from the Lord, and I want to start speaking that. And uh, you know, Diana starts like, i got a song I'm going to sing. She starts singing all that. You, you see what I'm saying? He says that's what was going on in their church. Right? Everybody's being crazy. Now look what he says. He says, let all things be done for edification. Church is not time for me to show off my gifts or my whatever. You know? Church is time for us to be edified or built up. So we need to do things in a way that builds people up. That's why he said there's a certain order to things. That's why he says we need to speak in an understandable way so that people will be built up. It's not just edification, though, or to be strengthened or built up. But look back at verse 23. He speaks that there are going to be circumstances where someone comes in who may not even be a believer at all. And in verse 23, he says, if someone comes in and you're acting all crazy in the assembly, he says, therefore, if the, verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted man or believers enter, will they not say that you are mad or crazy? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all and he is called to account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God. Notice, whenever we assemble, the reason why our teaching and the emphasis needs to be given on teaching so it will be built up and so it will be convicted. Sometimes you show up to church just because somebody dragged you there or you're curious or you just go because that's your habit and you're there and it hits you. Wow, I've been doing wrong. Wow, I need to be serving the Lord better. Wow, I need to change. That's the purpose of this assembly, that we would communicate to one another in ways that build one another up and that convict each other. But one more thing. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 of chapter 14. It says, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted or encouraged. You know, our assemblies, actually the text Nelson read for us from Hebrews 10 emphasizes that. That whenever we come together, we need to be encouraging each other. Now, if we're just all screaming and hollering and yelling... I guess you might get hyped from that, maybe, but probably not. It'd probably just be confusing and annoying and frustrating. The things that we do, whether it be in our prayers, our songs, our reading and teaching of Scripture, whatever it may be, the emphasis needs to be on trying to strengthen each other so that we can get out there this week and do it again and follow the Lord and make it out there and not get caught up in the world. So our assemblies are times in which we communicate with one another in ways that edify, convict, and encourage each other. 
Now, some of that's done by the actual content of what we talk about. So, for instance, that's why we try to give a lot of attention to the reading of Scripture. And even why, like, Stephen was giving comments about some of the songs. Like, here's what this song's about. Because we want the content to be understandable. And so that we get in our heads and like, okay, that idea helps me to go out there and live in the world. Um, but some of it is also by our demeanor or by our, our conduct, right? Um, this text emphasizes that in a couple of ways. For instance, he talks a lot about the order, right? That we don't need to have people just jumping up and talking and hollering and doing whatever. And we need to have an orderliness about that. Even actually in the way that we do things together. For instance, sometimes we may wonder, verse 34 says that in the assemblies, it's only men who are supposed to be speaking, right? You might say, what is that about? Like, does that mean like only men are spiritual or only men are smart? That ain't true, because actually all throughout Scripture, we see women elevated. Even in the resurrection, you see Jesus go to women first to proclaim the gospel. And yet, in the assembly, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be men who are the ones leading, teaching, speaking, etc. Why is that? Well, verse 34 in this text gives a reason why that in some ways is helpful, in some ways is kind of confusing. It says, this is to be done as the law says. What is the law? What did the Old Testament say about male and female relations? Most fundamentally, the very first thing that Scripture says about men and women is that men were created, man was created, and then woman was created from man. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a superiority. Actually, it doesn't mean there's a superiority from men because it actually says man was in need and woman supplied what was needed in him. Here's what I think, why I believe, and you could talk about this later and figure it out, because I've wrestled, why does God say only men are supposed to be doing the teaching and leading? I think whenever this happens, it gives us an opportunity to display our honor for God's creation. In other words, we're saying, hey, we believe that we're not the ones making the decisions. We believe that God is the one making the decisions. Which, by the way, the verse says it, so that's enough of that. But also, that that's how God created things from the very beginning. That men would take on the responsibility of service leadership. And you know, there's a lot of places where men neglect that responsibility. And so not only in what we teach are we, uh, in what we say, the content of what's said in an assembly, not only does that teach things, but also the way in which we handle our assemblies, it teaches things. Whenever we're being orderly, I'm saying, hey, I don't feel like I've got to jump up there and make my voice heard. I'll let somebody else talk. Or in a similar way, whenever we submit to God's instruction about male and female roles in the assembly, in church activity, we're saying something about God and what we believe about Him. Now let's talk a little bit more practically about some of this and how it goes for us and how we can communicate to one another in ways that edify and convict and encourage. One, as we already said, is through the reading and teaching of the Word, which, by the way, we always talk about this. It's really important if you sit here on a Sunday or any time and you hear something, you're like, that doesn't sound right. It's not just something that we encourage. It is essential for the health of this group of people for you to say something. For you to say, hey, I don't believe that's right. Or, hey, like, I don't understand what you're even saying. And I think you got to do that. This communication, a lot of times our communication feels one way, right? Like whenever someone's doing a reading or up here preaching or whatever or giving the lesson of the Lord. Whatever. It's not. And I know it, it is because we're just one person's talking. But this is a conversation. This is a dialogue. And we may present things in our teacher and reading of Scripture, but it's vital that all of us work together and try to figure this stuff out and ask questions and help each other to make sure that we're staying in alignment with God's Word. That's so critical. Because our assemblies are not time for somebody to talk. Our assemblies are time for us to communicate with one another in ways that edify and convict and encourage. 
I'll say this, that's really why we sing and why we're trying to work on our singing and trying to figure out what songs we can sing as a group and how we can use that. Ephesians 5 and verse 19, which I think we're going to talk about in class today, actually, talks about singing as a way that we're actually supposed to teach one another and encourage each other. And so we all participate in that in our worship whenever we sing. And so those of us who lead need to choose songs that are understandable and orderly, and all of us as we participate need to pour our hearts into that. I'm going to say one more thing about how we communicate. Some communicate, you guys know this, a lot of communication is uh, without any words. Matter of fact, all of you are communicating things to me right now. And I'm the only person talking, but all of you have been communicating stuff, whether you realize it or not. And I'm reading it. Like, I can see what you're thinking or feeling. I mean, not really, totally. But some of y'all are like, okay, like, wrap it up. I see that, right? I see that in your eyes, okay? No, I'm playing. But you get my point, right? Now, there's a couple of things we need to think about this. One is, like, this text emphasizes... Corinth, you're being crazy. Y'all need to settle down and lock in with the Lord and, you know, allow people to actually learn. Just like in the classroom, kids need an orderly classroom. We need that. This is our classroom as believers, right? Okay. But I'll say this. There's some other things we can communicate and we should be mindful of. You know, one thing that's interesting to me, one thing that people have said a couple times since visiting here, and this is just a fact. It's not like a good thing, bad thing. It's just a thing. We need to be aware of it. As people say, man, you got a quiet church. You know what I'm saying? Right? Now, listen, that's not bad, okay? That's fine. It really doesn't matter. Like, we've got actually a lot. We've got, we don't have a ton of, like, loud people. So it makes sense. But, you know, how could someone read that? What do you think about it? Someone from the outside. By the way, this text teaches that someone could come in from the outside and they could be here. How might someone read that if they come in and everything's always totally quiet? You know what? Some people would read that at is, is uh, man, these folks are dead. They're not really into what's going on. They don't really love the Lord. By the way, unfair, okay? Like, I know. Like, you're sitting there like, hey, I do love the Lord just because I'm not, okay, that's fine, that's fine, okay? But I do want to say this. So I'm not saying you need to change your personality or something like that and in, in, uh, in, in have a fake, like, church personality or something, but we need to be expressive for what we think and what we feel or whatever, right? So, for instance, you feel like saying amen, you should, you know? You feel like something's funny, it's okay to laugh. I know like, we, we got that one down sometimes. We just don't do very many funny things. That's the problem. But you get what I'm saying, right? Like whatever it may be, don't try to hold that back or whatever because the demeanor in which we carry ourselves conducts something. And also, really more importantly than how we are in the worship, whether we say amen or whether we lift our hands or whatever, you do whatever you want to do on that. Don't feel constrained by other people because you're communicating something to others. And one person may be really quiet and have their hands folded. Okay, they're communicating something. They're communicating a reverence and a seriousness. That's great. Somebody else may lift their hands up when they sing or shout out amen every other say. Okay, they're, they're really amped up into what's going on. That's great too, okay? We need to make sure that we, we just try to communicate what we really feel and what we are. But even more importantly than what we do in the assembly is what we do with each other, with those who come among us in our interactions, is that we communicate a sense of, uh, excitement and passion, thoughtfulness, uh, and care for the Lord and for one another. One more text, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Whenever we assemble, just as when Jesus assembled his disciples when he rose from the dead, it's to be Christ-centered. We come to worship him. It's an, uh, an arena in which we communicate to one another for our edification and conviction and encouragement. Thirdly, whenever we come together, it's to express the love of the gospel. It's to express the love of the gospel. You know, whenever Jesus rose from the dead and whenever he would gather his disciples, he showed a proactive um, intent on showing love. He finds Mary in the garden. 
the one who had had the demons, the one who was crying her eyes out, wanting to know where they had taken her Lord. He told the people who saw him first to go and to get the disciples and Peter. You ever notice that? He says, and Peter. Why and Peter? Like, Peter's one of the disciples. He was, but he was also the one who felt the most guilt after Jesus' death because he betrayed him. And Jesus said, you make sure Peter shows up too. He's still in, all right? I forgive him for what's done. We're going to fix this deal. Whenever Jesus was among the disciples and Thomas wasn't there, and then Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I put my finger in the holes of his hands and shove my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus came back and went straight to Thomas. And say, instead of saying to Thomas, what's wrong with you, boy? You should have believed in me. How dare you? So there you go. Whenever Jesus was among his disciples, he worked to show them the love of the gospel. And whenever we come together as his disciples, we should too. James chapter 2 speaks of a situation where when someone comes in the assembly, that some people might be treated differently than others. And this is a condemnation against that kind of treatment. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says that we're not supposed to show partiality. Verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't play favorites when it comes to people. He then goes on to kind of present a scenario. He says, I want you to imagine that somebody comes in and he's finely dressed. He's like, ooh, you come sit here in the good seat. Then someone else comes in and he's poorly dressed. You say, um, sit over there. Or, I mean, at my footstool, whatever. I don't care. Look at what he says about that in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you are doing well. Here he teaches, whenever people come into this assembly... They should be loved. They should be loved. Now, all people are loved by God. But what this teaches is they should be loved by us. And that love is not supposed to play favorites. Now, he points to economic favoritism here, right? Like, ooh, we like the rich guy. Like, he'll maybe help us out socially. Of course, you notice, he said this is a time whenever Christians were being oppressed and dragged into prison. So, you get somebody rich on your side, hey, we're in business now. He says, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not how it works. God didn't choose the rich. God chose the poor. And I want you to think even more broadly than just economics. So this, this applies to us. If someone comes in and we can tell, wow, this person is poor for whatever reason, right? That person deserves your love because God loved you. And you were poor. You were pathetic. You were in a bad way. But God showed you love. And I want you to think about other arenas of life where we may end up playing favorites, right? Someone looks like me. Socially, in whatever way that may be, right? Like economics is one form of social um, measurement. But you could think about ethnicity. You could think about how someone's dressed, whether it's poor or rich, or whether it's cool or lame. You know what I mean? Because we make those kinds of judgments. Oh, that person looks good, or like, oh, that person is weird. I'm not talking to them, you know? And it may be subconscious, more than conscious, or it may be conscious, where we say, I'm going to be drawn to these people and not to those people. That person looks like they got a rough background. I don't, I don't know. They look like they got a lot of baggage going there. I don't really want to be getting my hands dirty in that lifestyle or whatever, right? Look, whenever someone comes among God's people, we treat them the same way Jesus treated Mary and Peter and Thomas and you and me. We show them the love of the gospel. That's the king's law. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we come together, certainly we do it to be Christ-centered. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper and do all that. We do it so that we'll communicate with one another in ways that edify, convict, and encourage. But when we come together, we come together to show the love of the gospel. Actually, that's what the collection's about. That's why on the first day of the week, we give. It's not just because we're trying to accrue some bank account. We're trying to, I think it was uh, maybe Caleb last week, somebody was talking about. Whenever we take up a collection, really the primary thing we're, we're thinking about is whenever someone among us is in need, that we can supply for that. So we're not scrambling, trying to take care of somebody who has a big hospital bill or some bad thing happens in their life or whatever, and they can't take care of themselves. We're supposed to do that as a family. And that's what we're supposed to spend time with one another, talking to each other, encouraging each other. You notice the text Nelson read for us before the lesson. It says you're supposed to consider one another. In other words, before I show up, I need to be thinking about, all right, who, who, who do I need to talk to to just see how their life's going, see how their walk is, see what's going on with them? Who do I need to be aware of if they come among us as a visitor? How can I be there for somebody? How can I encourage them? How can I do something for them? Because when we come together, it's not for me, and it's not just for us. It's for what the Lord's working in the world, and that work is to show the love of the gospel. And that's ultimately what this whole thing is about. In a few minutes, we're going to think about the love the Lord showed for us in the death of Jesus in, uh, as we observe the supper. Without the love of God, all of us would be hopeless. And we come together, we want to center ourselves on that love, to communicate with each other, to remind ourselves of it, and then to even express it and practice it among ourselves. That's what the Lord did when he assembled his people. And that's what we need to do when we assemble as his people. We're going to sing a song now, and uh, appreciate your good attention. May God help us in these things.